Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast host. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 310 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura's talking with Annie Duke on how to make your decision-making strategy more effective and efficient. Today's podcast is brought to you by ESQ Marketing, Postali, Cosmolux, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. Happy New Year, everyone. It's our first episode of 2021. That's so exciting. I also can't believe that we're at episode 310. That's absolutely crazy how many episodes of the podcast we're at, but yay. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, I wish it felt a little bit different. I feel like we've all been waiting for this moment because we thought maybe the blinders were, I don't know, something the universe was going to open up and yeah, be different. The slate was going to be wiped clean and it doesn't sound like that's necessarily going to happen, but there is still like a great momentum this time of year where you can really kind of, we were even talking about this as a team the other day, vision casting what you want out of the year. What are the exercises that you do to step back and look forward? And even if this year is still not as predictable as maybe what we would have hoped, it's still a really good time to dig into that momentum and figure out what you want going into the new year. Yeah. And I think as you kind of approach that process, process. It's hard sometimes to do a little bit in a vacuum, right? Like I, um, I love doing my vision planning on my, um, on day one of the new year. It just feels like a fresh start even in the middle of a pandemic. But then for a lot of people, when they're making major decisions or thinking things through, and I know you're going to talk to Annie about this a little bit in today's episode, Sometimes it's it's hard to do by yourself, especially those bigger decisions. And I think as a solo or small firm owner, it can feel very lonely because there's not a lot of people in your organization that you can talk to about major strategic decisions for your business or hiring and firing decisions or, you know, some of these other kind of big things that come up. Yeah. And you need that sounding board of somebody to talk things through because you are not just the practitioner of law in your office as a solo or small firm person. You are also often the owner. So you have business decisions that you have to make, and that can be a lot to carry. There's a lot of decisions you have to think through. There's a lot of things that you're responsible for. And like you said, it's really hard when you don't have someone that you can turn to. And I think we see this sometimes when you recognize that you don't have that sounding board, you go to look for the answer, right? And there's this important distinction between consulting and coaching because your coach doesn't necessarily have the answer. Sometimes they have a good intuitive hit or they know you well enough to suggest possible options, but it's quite different than going to go hire a consultant. So could you break down for us why those two things are so different and those terms are really not that interchangeable? Yeah, I think um, it's really easy to 
if you kind of use this analogy that I learned when I got my coaching certification, so bear with me, but it kind of helps. There's this idea that we're probably have all watched at least a couple of medical shows on TV to know that when you get an organ transplant, your body's natural inclination is to reject this organ, right? It's a foreign body. And even though it's necessary, it's a new kidney or a new, whatever you got, that's going to keep your body alive. Your body's like, Whoa, I don't want this thing inside of me. Um, so if you think about that in our, you're like, where is that going with coaching and consulting? I know. <laughs> um, as a coach, the likelihood is that, you know, inherently what you want to do or what the right decision is for you. Like you said, I can have an inclination and I can have suggestions and ideas, but ultimately there are a lot of decisions that ultimately do rest on your shoulders. And my job isn't necessarily to tell you what to do. And in fact, just like that foreign kidney, if I just tell you what to do and it's not the right decision, you are going to reject it, right? Like just like that foreign object, that kidney, it's not going to sit well with you. And so my job as a coach is to ask you the questions and to kind of give you a path through a lot of times through questionings so that you can discover your own answer for yourself versus like a consultant whose job, they just come in and, and tell you something. And so we see this play out all the time. If you think about it, that's why I think one, having a community and having people that you can talk through these, these big decisions with, if you are in the right community, they can take you down this path as well, right? Like I'm sure you've had conversations with your friends where they just asked you something and the light bulb went off and you're like, oh yeah, I totally know what I need it to do. Right. It was just like, oh yeah, that was there all along. You just hadn't really kind of brought that thought to the forefront. And so that's ultimately, that is what the coaching process is designed to help you do. And so, you know, we often talk in, in lawyerist, I feel like I wear four different hats, right? Like sometimes I'm a coach, sometimes I am a consultant, sometimes I'm a teacher, like I'm, you know, and I just have to shape shift for what the situation calls for. Yeah, I love that. And we do see it all the time. Sometimes someone will show up to a coaching call or to something like a lab con and they're like, okay, this is the thing I'm working on. And us or other labsters asking why, like, so why are you doing that? Like, what's the reason behind that? Sometimes people will actually talk themselves out of something that they thought they needed to do, but really just didn't resonate with any of the things they actually wanted in their firm, right? Like they heard this was the way to do it or to grow means that you need to hire more people or work longer hours or something like that. And if that doesn't resonate with the vision that you have for your firm, it sometimes can be helpful to get yourself out of your own tailspin by talking it out hearing it, having someone else tell you, okay, well, that's the thing you want to do. These are the steps you have to take. Sometimes you'll go, oh yeah, I actually don't want that. I don't know why I put so much effort into feeling like this was going to be the next thing to work on. So these are all important tips to keep in mind and you'll learn a lot more about decision-making in this episode. So now we have my conversation with Annie. Annie Duke. I'm the author of Thinking in Bets and most recently How to Decide, which just came out in October. I'm probably best known as a former professional poker player, but now I am a consultant in decision strategy. 
uh, and behavioral science. I love that. Bonus points for the very creative background and getting into what you're doing today. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. So what influenced the creation of the book, How to Decide? I feel like this is a very relevant topic in 2020 and 2021. What encouraged you to write it? Yeah. So to be fair, I I wasn't imagining as I was writing it, what 2020 would look like since (laughs) I wrote it in 2019. I'd like to take credit for that, but I can't. Yeah. So, so the inspiration for how to decide actually came from the, the book that I wrote previously, which was thinking in bets and thinking in bets. The main thesis of the book is that uh, when we make decisions, there's lots of uncertainty that comes in two forms. Um, one is just luck, right? We, we can make great decisions and they can turn out poorly or we can make quite poor decisions and they can turn out well. And this, this just makes decision-making really hard. You know, we have less control over the way that things are gonna turn out than we think, um, you know, and luck can just intervene. And then the other form of uncertainty is uh, imperfect information or hidden information. And you can think about this in a poker sense, right? There's not just the fact that I can't control the turn of a card, but I also have this problem, which is I can't see what the other players' cards are. And so I have to start to try to narrow down and guess at what, what cards they're holding. And this is very much like human decision-making. We, we know a little bit, but not everything we need to know uh, in order to make a perfect decision. And I think we've all had that feeling of, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I would make a better decision. And that, that is where you can really feel the influence of hidden information or imperfect information. So that book was an exploration of that just kind of as a topic with a little bit of how to, but it was mostly why should you care about this problem? And uh, as I interacted with readers of that book, it became really clear that they were hungry for, for something about how, right? Like given that there's so much uncertainty, how can you be a great decision maker? What would a great decision process look like? How can you figure out uh, what's luck and what skill and when should I take a long time with a decision? When should I take a little bit of time with a decision? And that sense that I was getting from my my readers and those conversations with them that they'd really like me to ground this into something more practical. I just really listened to it and felt like that's what I should deliver. And that's how How to Decide came about. Yeah. And it feels like the timing was perfect just because so many of these topics are extremely relevant with all the shifts we've gone through in the past year. But, you know, culturally and in society, things that were already happening before the pandemic and all of the changes that we've had to make since then. You just talked a little bit about experience. What role does experience play in the decision-making process? I feel like we often feel like, well, if I have more experience, I have better control and knowledge of the variables that go into making a decision. Do you find that to be true or is there something else we should know about the role of experience? So that's actually a a super deep question because I think I think it feels obvious to people that more experience would make you a better decision maker. Uh, it would improve your knowledge. Certainly, if you think about this problem of hidden information or imperfect information, it feels like the more experience we have, the more accurate uh, the information that we have or the knowledge that we have that would go into a decision would be. Um, and that's somewhat true, but uh, there's kind of two problems on the experience side. The first is that Experience is certainly necessary for learning, but it's not sufficient. And this goes back to this this idea of like, what does an outcome mean, right? Because we can go through a traffic light and get through fine or get in an accident. We could have both things happen. And we could also, you know, it could be that we go through that traffic light and it's green and we get in an accident. Or it could be that we go through the traffic light and it's red 
and we don't get in an accident. So we have this problem, which is that when we see the outcomes of our decisions, it's hard for us to know whether that's because of luck or skill. So while experience is certainly necessary for learning, experience can actually frustrate our learning and actually uh, make it hard for us to learn from experience because there are certain things that are very regular about the way that we make mistakes about the outcomes of our own decisions. So one of those would be what's called resulting, which is that we assume that if we have a good outcome, it must have come from a good decision, or if we have a bad outcome, it must have come from a bad decision. And you can see how that could cause us to learn some pretty poor lessons, right? Like I, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, I used to hear people say things like, I drive better when I'm drunk. <laughs> and that's kind of the result of like, I got home safely, even though I was wasted. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're sort of like, I don't think that's true. But in our lives, we're doing the equivalent of I drive better when I'm drunk all the time, where, where we're sort of taking the outcomes and we're sort of learning the wrong lessons from them. So that's kind of the first problem. The second problem that has to do with experience, which I think it shows that it's really a double-edged sword, is that as we gain more experience, we also gain a lot more confidence in the beliefs that we have. We start to judge those as more accurate. And we we start to think that the way that we, you know, we model the world, like how do we think about the information that's out there and what kind of conclusions we're supposed to draw from it? You know, which aren't obvious in the data, right? Like the data doesn't give us the truth because we then have to look at that data and draw different conclusions from it. We start to get much more confident in those conclusions and two bad things happen from that as we sort of get entrenched in the way that we view the world. The first thing is that we'll get more in this sort of motivated reasoning pattern where we're sort of interacting with information and we're processing information in a way that agrees with the models of the world that we already have. So, so that's the first problem that comes from it. So what happens is that as we get more experienced and kind of smarter in that way, it's easier for us to look at data and reject it and to take data and accept it. So we sort of dug this trench of our own beliefs about the world, and then we keep digging it deeper and deeper and deeper, even when information might uh, contradict the the beliefs that we have, um, but we're better at rejecting it. We're better at telling stories, and and not by the way to manipulate other people. This is really just to manipulate our own kind of self narrative, and we don't even know we're doing it. So that's problem number one that comes from experience, and then problem number two, which is kind of subtle, is that we become more influential over the people that we're talking to. So when we talk about the the conclusions that we draw or the decisions that we think we're supposed to make, uh, other people are just more likely to agree with us because they know that we're experienced. And even if they think a different thing or they have a different idea about the way that we should do things or they uh, have contradictory facts uh, that they might have in their possession, they're much less likely to tell us. So we're actually not even necessarily hearing other people's points of view that might help us to correct the things that we might have wrong. So there's lots of things that go on with experience that make it unintuitive, you know, in terms of how much it might help. That is all so fascinating about the way that we process information and sort of build these habits that end up carrying over into the future. So I know the whole book is about decision making and you can't really simplify it down too much, but I know that you have a couple of different steps to make better decisions. Can you kind of walk us through some of those steps and how to do them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is really important that most really good processes 
you know, most really good strategies for making decisions are going to be pretty simple. Now, implementing those is where things get complicated, but the structure of a great decision, if you just understand what is the structure of a great decision, um, that part of it is quite simple. Um, and, And basically the way that you can think about it is that pretty much every decision that you make, really, I would say every decision you make is a forecast of the future. So like, what do I mean by that? Well, the person you decide to marry, that you're making a prediction that that person is going to help you to live a happy and fulfilled life. You know, you're making a prediction about the future. Even something simple like what route you choose to go to work is a prediction about the future. You know, like which route is going to be the most efficient and it's going to get me to work the most reliably. Or maybe you want a scenic route and you're making a prediction about which route is going to be the most scenic. So from sort of the most consequential and complex decisions like who to marry to the simplest decisions about, you know, where where should I go to work or what should I order off a menu to eat tonight? These are all predictions of the future. And once you kind of understand that, then you can get to some pretty simple steps about how you might make a great decision. And this goes into the three Ps. So what you want to do is try to identify for any decision that you're thinking about, like a route to work or what you're ordering off a menu or who you want to go on a date with or what sales strategy you're thinking about implementing or what type of juror you think you should select for a trial or whether you should settle, um, anything like that. You basically say, I'm considering this option. And now let me think about uh, what are the different possibilities that might occur? And you want to think about the reasonable set of things that could result if you were to choose that particular option. And obviously, in those possibilities, you want to think about how much do I like each of those and how much do I not like each of those, right? So that would be, so we have the possibilities and our preferences for those possibilities. So that's two of the P's. And then the other thing we want to think about is not just how much do I like or dislike each, each of those possibilities, which is really going to be how much is each going to either advance me toward my goals or cause me to to lose ground and retreat away from my goals. And obviously we're going to prefer things that cause you to advance toward your goals that kind of get you to where you want to get. But then what we also know is that each of those things, no matter how much we like them, they're not all equally possible. So each of them has some probability of happening. So this is the third P that you really care about. And what you want to do is take a stab at how likely do I think each of those things is to occur. And once you've done that, notice that what you can see is that you can look at, if I sort of broadly group here, this is the set of things that could occur that I really like, that's going to help me advance toward my goals. And here are the set of things that could happen as a result of my decision that might cause me to retreat away. And look, it's, it's more possible that I'm going to gain ground than lose ground right? That, that seems to be more likely. And that's why you want that probability component in there, because you really want to understand what the chances are of you getting that great outcome or what the chances are of you getting a bad one. And once you've done that, now you can get a sense of the quality of that particular option. And notice now, if you then do that for other options that you're considering, you have a very easy way to compare them to each other now. I'd imagine that not every decision or outcome is weighted equally. Do you have recommendations around, like, I'm sure you don't just apply this process, you know, equally across every single thing. So how do we tell or pull out that data around, is this important for me to even continue thinking about? Are the consequences of this decision even big enough to be problematic or do they not matter? Do you have suggestions around that? Yeah, absolutely. So so let me just say, first of all, that even for the littlest decisions that you take no time on, you are doing this, 
some somewhere inside of you, you're thinking about the possibilities and, and how much you like the, the outcomes that might result and how likely those things are. But the question is, how explicit are you getting in that process? And then also, how much time are you spending gathering information that would help inform that question, right? Because it's not obvious necessarily what the possible outcomes might be. It's not obvious how much you would like or dislike any of those. And it's it's not automatically obvious how likely those things are to occur, what the probability of any outcome is. So you need to do some information gathering and some thinking in order to really get an accurate vision of what the future might hold. So what we want to think about in our decision-making time is that there's a trade-off between time and accuracy. So generally, the more time that we spend on a decision, the more accurate that kind of forecast or prediction about what the future might hold will be. And the less time that we spend on a decision, we're going to have more of a fudge factor there. So as, as we're thinking about that question of how much of, of a like fudge factor can we afford, in other words, should we save time or not here, we can think about decisions broadly in two ways. One is what's the impact of the decision. And the other one is kind of how much leeway do we have to be able to change our mind later? So in terms of impact, it turns out that a lot of decisions that people spend quite a bit of time on, if you actually think about how much is this going to matter? In other words, how much is this going to really advance me toward my goals or frankly cause me to retreat away from them? Uh, the answer is often not as much as you think. So here's an example. When people spend time looking at a restaurant menu, uh, I think the average person spends about 14 minutes looking at a restaurant menu. But here's where we get into this impact question. Like how much of an, of an impact does that decision really have overall on your life and your ability to achieve your goals? Assume your goal is happiness, right? So, I mean, I can ask you, Laura, like, so let's say that you ordered off a, rest, a restaurant menu. Uh, right now, I guess you'd have it delivered. And um, the food was really bad, like terrible. And I, I saw you in a year and I said, hey, Laura, do you remember when we had that food a year ago and it was like awful? It was really a horrible meal. How much of an effect did it have on your happiness today, a year later? Oh, like none. Right. And what if I saw you in a month and I said, remember, we had a meal a month ago. How much did the fact that the food wasn't so good affect your happiness today? It wouldn't really affect me. Right. So, so, and I, I'm imagining if I asked you in a week, you'd be like, probably not really affect me at all there. So <laughs> here you are agonizing over this decision. Like, should I order the chicken or the fish? When, when you take the time to think about what's the long-term impact on my happiness, in other words, what's that payoff? What, right? Like, is this really going to change the course of my life at all? <laughs> the answer is literally not one tiny whip, yeah. not a bit. So in that case, you should actually save quite a bit of time. So you shouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to make this process explicit. You shouldn't actually be quizzing every member of the wait staff and asking every single person at the table what you like, you should just divide it into here are dishes I probably am going to like, and here are ones I'm probably not going to like, and then I'll just flip a coin or go with my gut or whatever. So, so that's that impact question. So the happiness test is actually a great way to sort of explore the impact of the decision. Now, the other thing you want to think about is how easy is it for me to change my mind? So, uh, you know, like this is the sort of dating versus marrying way to think about things. So Obviously, a person you go out on a date with, it's easy for you to change your mind and decide, I don't really want to go out on another date with that person, or I don't want to be in this date, so my friend's going to call me with an emergency, <laughs> or you know, whatever it is. It's, e it's easy to sort of change your mind about a date. It's a lot harder to change your mind about who you marry. 
So when we think about how easy is it for us to change our mind, that's a way for us to reduce the impact of getting kind of a bad outcome. So when we can change our minds really easily, we should actually tend to go faster. And the other thing is when the decision repeats over and over again, we also get to go faster too. So if we go back to the restaurant menu, um, if you order a bad meal at lunch, it matters very little, partly because you get to try again for dinner. And then you get to try again for breakfast. And then you get to try again for the next lunch. So, you know, the fact of the bad meal the one time is, is not that consequential, not just because it's, it tends to be a pretty low impact decision in itself, but because you're going to get another try. And there's a whole bunch of these different tricks. There's more in the book, but there's a lot in the book about how to actually speed up a lot of decisions that people take a lot of time with and get out of that kind of analysis, you know, that endless analysis loop, what we call analysis paralysis. Oh, I love that. And I have another question on that, which we're going to get to after we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Support for today's episode comes from ESQ Marketing an agency that believes in affordable and reliable marketing for solo practitioners and small law firms. With ESQ Marketing, you'll work with experts in legal marketing. All of their intense focus is on helping attorneys generate more clients and cases from the internet. They don't work with anyone else. You'll breathe easy with low-risk, month-to-month contracts, and there are no long-term commitments. ESQ Marketing earns the right to work for your firm each and every month. Best of all, You'll get direct access to the person working on your account. No account managers to deal with and no lost in translation with your requests. To see if you're a fit, visit esq.marketing forward slash lawyerist to get started. Support for today's episode comes from Postali, a full service legal marketing agency for law firms. The attorney-client relationship is the cornerstone of the legal profession. Just like you put the client's needs first, You deserve a marketing agency that does the same to grow your practice. Postali works with law firms nationwide and is the only full-service legal marketing agency that can call itself a marketing fiduciary. That's because, at Postali, the impressive results they achieve come from always putting your law firm's financial interests above their own. Imagine a relationship with a legal marketing agency that treats your investment as they would their own dollars, without hollow SEO promises, no commission-based upselling, and who won't work with your competitors. Postali is the marketing agency for legal professionals looking for 100% transparency and genuine guidance from a real marketing partner. To learn more about the benefits of working with a marketing fiduciary, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. Contact them for a free consult and mention this podcast. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with easy-to-use cross-platform snippets. Text Expander makes quick work of mundane, repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to needless text entry, spelling and grammar errors, and inconsistency in your messaging. When you use Text Expander, you can say the same thing, the right thing, in just a few keystrokes. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. These versatile snippets are better than copy and paste, and they're better than scripts and templates. They work across devices and platforms to allow you to maximize your efficiency while still customizing and personalizing your messages. So take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Okay, we're back. 
I was thinking as you were talking about how much we agonize over some of these small decisions. I feel like one thing that I've read a lot about recently, and I feel that I say I'm suffering from myself all the time, is decision fatigue. Do you, one, I guess, do you think that that's a thing? And two, if it is, is what we're doing to ourselves with all these smaller decisions, is that weighing into that? So then we have less capacity and mental energy around some of the things where we really should direct some focus? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, there was a lot of work on willpower a while ago that was quite popular uh, that suggested that willpower was sort of a limited resource. So, you know, the idea was like, if you went to the gym, you were more likely to have a muffin afterwards because you'd used up part of your willpower (laughs) budget for the day. Yeah. And then when you face down the, you know, the cookie or whatever, you would have less willpower to withstand that. It, It turns out that that particular, you know, that particular science doesn't really replicate. So everybody who thinks that willpower is a limited resource, it turns out the science doesn't actually support that. And if you have a good mindset around willpower, you will have, uh, it's a pretty unlimited resource, it turns out. Um, That being said, it is true that we do have these tendencies toward kind of efficiencies in the way that we approach things like decisions. And so if you've just spent a lot of time thinking about a decision, it is true that you're more likely to sort of punt the next one and be kind of fast in that. So that is actually a real problem. And and what I would recommend in terms of of those things, number one, recognize what decisions are important and what aren't, right? Like if you're spending a ton of time trying to figure out what to wear in the morning or a ton of time what to figure out, you know, what to to watch on Netflix, you're going to use up some of that, you know, you're going to get tired. And when we're tired, we make worse decisions and we tend to punch a lot of stuff and we tend to make a lot of errors. And you know, particularly like if you think about like what to watch on Netflix, this is very reversible, right? I think that we forget that if we don't like the show we're watching, we can turn it off and try something else after 15 minutes. We have no obligation whatsoever to watch it until the end. <laughs> like, remember that going in. So, so I, I think the first thing is, and I sort of mentioned it in terms of the menu problem, which is like sort the menu into things you like, and then don't spend a lot of time picking between those things after that. This is what I call actually the menu strategy, and you should use it for life. Sort things into this one looks pretty good. This one doesn't. Let me choose among the things that look pretty good. And one of the ways to do that sorting is to apply what I'd call the only option test, which is for any option, say, let me imagine a world where this were the only option that I had. Would would I be pretty happy with it or would I be sad? And if the answer is yes, I would be pretty happy with this then you should sort that into things you'd be willing to choose. And if the answer is no, I wouldn't be pretty happy with this. Like if I were looking at a menu and my only option were eggplant, I'd be very sad because I happen really to not like eggplant. So so then I would toss that out as, a, as an option. So take this menu strategy and kind of sort things into things you like and then don't spend a lot of time on the picking. And we tend to spend a lot of time picking between options we don't like and that can really wear us out. So that's number one. Number two is... Um, We should recognize when we're going to be pretty poor decision makers, like when we're tired or when we're upset, um, areas where we tend to falter. And as much as possible, try to make decisions in advance. So let me give you an example from my own life of a decision that I make in advance, and I call this a category decision. I decide about a whole category of things, what I sort of pre-choose. So for me, I would like to eat healthier. And so... Part of that for me is that I don't want to eat animal products at all. Um, there's a variety of reasons for me. not. I, it's not an ethical choice for me. It's a health choice for me that I don't want to eat animal products. 
Now, what I found in the past was that when I made that decision, like I don't want to eat animal products and I was sort of choosing every time I ate that there was a lot of like, ah, there's cheese on this salad at the restaurant. I don't really care. Um, and boy, you know, my husband's steak looks really good. I'll take a bite of it. And it really doesn't, I don't feel well when I do that, but I was making, I was sort of faltering a lot. So then I just made a decision. I'm a vegan. Notice this is kind of pre-deciding, right? Because now every time that I'm looking at a menu, there's a whole bunch of options that I can't even consider. It really narrows down the set of things that I can choose from. Um, and that I find works really well in all sorts of different ways. So uh, you can make these decisions in advance. So examples of those would be like, I'm, I'm a vegan would be one. So we can make those in terms of dietary choices. You can also decide in advance, like I'm going to block out two hours a day on my calendar that uh, are going to be for reading, right? So we often find that we spend so much time on emails or meetings or whatever that we don't get to do any kind of deep work. So you could block that out and say, I do deep work two hours a day and it's on my calendar. That would be a way to pre-decide. You know, you could create like a social media budget and you can decide that in advance as an example. So you can, the more that you can think about like, what are the things that I could decide in advance so that I'm not making decisions in the moment, the fewer mistakes you're going to make. Because in advance, you're going to tend to be more rational. You're going to be less tired. You're going to be in a better frame of mind. I think that's a wonderful way to think about it, particularly when you're combining it with thinking about some of those smaller decisions that you really don't need to exert that much mental energy over or even come into your decision-making process. It feels like combining those two things could be instrumental in helping a lot of people deal with how many decisions and choices we have to make on a day-to-day -day basis. One other question that I had for you about this whole process of decision-making, we've talked a lot about how to do it individually. At what point, if at all, do you involve other people in your decision-making process? And do you have any tips around that? So for, for any decision that matters, I want to involve other people. And the, the reason is, so I don't, I, you know, it's funny because when you, when we used to go to restaurants, people involve other people in their decision about what to order on a menu, which is really funny, right? Because it doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> I, and I think about yeah. that. The thing that I think about that is that people think about it through the wrong frame. They're like, you know, I'm going to be so sad if I get my food in a taste battle, feel like I made a mistake when the appropriate question is really, if it's not so good, does it really matter? Right, right. When the answer is no. So, so people will involve other people in those decisions, but all of a sudden when it gets to a really big one, they won't involve anybody else, which I think is quite funny. So we sort of have it reversed, right? If it really matters at all, you should involve other people. When we're thinking about our own decisions, like we're all pretty familiar with this problem of cognitive bias, you know, in large part because of the popularity of Thinking Fast and Slow from Daniel Kahneman, which is an amazing book. But, you know, we, we know about like confirmation bias where we confirm the beliefs we already have. I talked about motivated reasoning with the expertise problem, with the illusion of control that we have like more control over outcomes than we do. And these can all frustrate the quality of our decisions. Well, these are all part of what we call the inside view. So, so like, what's the inside view? It's, it's the world, you know, seen through our own perspective. So that would include uh, the things that we happen to know or think are true, as well as the perspectives that we have on the world. Like, how are we thinking about like our own mental models or the conclusions that we draw from, from the facts that we know, for example. So that's the inside view. And the inside view is where all that cognitive bias lives that frustrates our decisions. Now, the outside view is two things. It's what's true of the world in general, meaning like it doesn't matter if I think that the earth is a trapezoid, right, which would be my, maybe my inside view. Uh, the earth is round regardless of what I think, right? There are just things that are true of the world independent of my own thoughts or feelings about them. 
So that's part of the outside view. And then the other part of the outside view would be the world from somebody else's perspective. In other words, like if you were looking at the exact same data and considering the exact same problem, I might come to one conclusion about what decision I might want to make there. Uh, and you might come to a completely different conclusion about that. And it turns out that when you allow the inside and outside view to collide with each other, the intersection of those two things actually gets you to a more accurate place. So since accuracy is what we want when we're making really important decisions, that's why it's really important to bring other people into the conversation. The key though is to make sure that you don't bring them into an echo chamber. Because a lot of times when we're talking to other people, uh, we interact in a way that causes them to echo our beliefs back to us, which, well, now that doesn't help, right? Because that's just kind of amplifying the inside view, which is the whole problem in the first place. So when you are asking for other people's help, here's the big key. Don't let them know what you think about the problem yourself until they've already told you what they think. So, you know, as an example, if I'm thinking about, let's say I'm thinking about a particular you know, should I settle a case or should I go to trial? Tell the person the facts of the matter, right? Here are the facts in the case, which are things like, who's the judge? What are the facts of the case? It, you know, you could say things about the judge, like, are they pro-defendant? Are they pro-plaintiff? You know, what's their record been in the past? So and so forth. Um, so give them all the facts that they need in order to draw the conclusions. In fact, give them the same facts that you had. And then instead of saying, I really think that we should settle because I'm very concerned about going to trial here. What do you think? Just say, what do you think? Do you think we should settle or do you think we should go to trial? And don't let them know what your opinion is first. And if that's literally the only thing that you take from this conversation that we're having, that in itself will be a life changer. <laughs> oh my goodness. I cannot wait to dive in more with your book because I think there's so much good material there that we've touched on already. And I know there's so much more in there. Where can people go to learn more about the work that you're doing? Oh yeah. Thanks so much. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke. Uh, that's where you're going to get most of me just tweeting about things. I'm obviously on other social channels, LinkedIn, you know, so on and so forth. You can also go to my website, uh, which is AnnieDuke.com. And there you can see, you know, articles that I've written, newsletters that I've written, uh, that I send out, um, videos of me speaking, so on and so forth. So you can sort of, you know, get a flavor for the kind of work that I do. Uh, and then you can, there's also a contact form there. And, you know, I, I, I hope that all the listeners heard very clearly that how to decide came out of conversations with readers. Um, and those conversations with the readers came from people using that contact form on my website and actually reaching out to me to, to talk to me, uh, which I really appreciated. I'm not perfect at getting back to people, uh, but I'm, I'm probably shooting about 85 or 90%. And it's not because I don't want to get back to hundred percent of people, but we all know what happens to our email. Um, and it happens to me as well. I am not perfect. Um, so, but I do try. So I love to hear from people there. And then the other place that I would love people to check out is the Alliance for Decision Education. And that is a nonprofit that I co-founded where what we're doing is trying to bring this type of thinking about really intentionally thinking about decision-making and how to improve decision quality into K through 12 education. And that's what the mission of that organization is. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. 
Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.